Now on the Business Radio X Network, Conscious Capitalism, elevating humanity through business in Southern Arizona. Your hosts, Sarah McLaren and Jeremy Neese. Southern Arizona does good business, and we want to talk about it. Welcome to the Conscious Capitalism podcast, elevating humanity through business in Southern Arizona. Conscious Capitalism is an international movement promoting business as a force for good. The Conscious Capitalism movement has 50 plus chapters in the United States, including Arizona, with lots of activity down here in the southern part of our state. On this show, we want to shine a light on real-world examples of good business happening right in our own backyards. We invite leaders in our community to share their stories and experiences, to tell us about their personal journey through the world of business, to let us know what makes their organizations great, and how they go about bringing value to Southern Arizona. To find out more about conscious capitalism and the chapter activity happening in our state, please visit ccarizona.org for more information. And for now, let's get into some good business conversations and introduce you to the voices who will be participating in today's show. As for myself, I am Jeremy Neese, one of your hosts. Uh, I am guided by the uh, bumper sticker of better business practices equals better world problems. So that explains my interest in being part of the team at Conscious Capitalism and also my for-profit uh, endeavors where as an investment coach, I help people align their dollars with their values and invest in sustainable, responsible and impact uh, avenues. And my name is Sarah McCarran, and I'm uh, with McCarran Compliance, where we provide safety, training, and consulting services, primarily serving the mining and construction in industries. And our purpose is creating communities where we all watch out for each other. And our guests for today, we, ha- we are starting with Rachel Collins, who is the Chief Inspiration Officer at Partners in Prosperity. Rachel Collins is an entrepreneur who has been a successful strategic management and organizational effectiveness consultant for 30 years. She is a communication, business, and motivation expert who provides business improvement expertise to improve organizational effectiveness, insight and recruiting savvy to to help her clients increase profitability, productivity, organizational energy, employee commitment, and customer satisfaction, all in alignment with strategic goals. Ms. Collins has worked with industry and companies of every type and size, from startups all the way to national brands. Thank you so much for being here with us, Rachel. It is my pleasure. And our other guest is Anthony Martinez. He is president of Zenitra Strategy Consulting and also an adjunct lecturer of business and law at the Eller College of Management. Mr. Martinez spent 30 years in the military and reserves, as well as a varied career in meditation, consulting, mediation, mediation, (laughs) mediation, consulting. I just have a feeling he meditates, but you know, thank you. Uh, Mediation, uh, consulting, leadership of startups and nonprofits, board advisement, Hispanic chamber development, and as a professor of ethics and business law for 17 years at multiple universities. His key competencies center around strategic management, legal environment of business, ethics, business law, leadership dynamics, and uh, organizational behavior. He holds a JD in law from Arizona State University, MSW from the University of California, and a BA in sociology from the University of San Francisco. Thank you so much for joining us, Anthony. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation. 
Um, so we are so pleased to have you both here. You're going to bring so much uh, wisdom and experience to this conversation around ethics and how we empower leaders to uh, to bring this modern style of business uh, and propagate it forward. Uh, you know, Rachel, you and I met probably a little over a year ago at a Conscious Capitalism event. I would love for you to share, you know, the story. What led you to that uh, particular event, and you know, what has your your journey and your story been like up until this point? Well, when I got out of undergrad, which was just shortly before I went uh, to my graduate program, I decided to be in consulting. And the whole principle, I believe, of organizational development consulting is conscious capitalism. So I, I really have not worked for nonprofits in my entire career. It's all been for-profit companies. And I would say the majority of them have been very conscious. But the reason they are is because they do use consultants and they do put resources into planning and making sure that they're creating cultures that are conscious and they very specifically care about their community, their uh, stakeholders like their investors, their employees, and certainly their customers. So I've had a passion for conscious capitalism for 30 years and that's essentially what my entire career is about. Great. Thank you for that. Anthony, how about you? Would you give us a little bit of your background and kind of what led you to the path you chose? Well, I would say my education was very fundamental uh, in starting me in an ethical and service direction. Um, I attended the University of San Francisco, which is a Jesuit university. Um, my original goal was to become a Jesuit priest. But I, after four years of that, uh, at the University of San Francisco, I decided to go to law school, which was UC Berkeley, um, and then my master's degree from Arizona State University in social work. So I wanted to do good, um, and I wanted to use the law as an instrument uh, to do good, to, to because the law was so instrumental in so much. Sure. So I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I decided to become a professor, and I thought that that was the best career to be able to reach young people um, to, to be um, responsible citizens here in the country. That's fantastic. We appreciate you doing so. Thank you very much. So I'm just curious, what was it uh, on the path that, you know, you, you obviously started off wanting to do to do good and to, you know, to create uh, an ethical world, you know, and originally through, you know, being a Jesuit priest. Uh -huh. And then what, is there an experience or what was it that kind of led you to say, you know, my impact might be greater if I went into law? Well, I think I wanted, I started by wanting to be a, a priest. And so the fundamentals there is to serve and to lead. That was the motto at USF. But after my degree, I decided I could do even better by going into social work. And in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, you know, that was the end of Vietnam War. I decided, well, maybe social work is the way to go. But once I went into social work, I decided that the skill sets weren't there for me. Hmm. Uh, so that's when I decided to go back to law school at Berkeley. And Berkeley was the perfect place because everything was happening there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you had the extreme left and right and all that. And I thought, well, study law and that will um, get you started. So that's kind of, so I came into the career of teaching with law and social work uh, as, my, as my focus. So keep digging into, you know, the areas that call to you and then figure out how do I most effectively, you know, spread it or share it. Um, that's pretty much, I mean, I think my original 
calling was to want to be a community organizer uh, when I started teaching at Arizona State. Um, and uh, after a while, I realized that the political system was very engaged in developing uh, the war on poverty, for example, or all social programs has some law basis. Mm -hmm. So I thought I, I wanted to really understand um, the legislative process. So I actually did work uh, when I finished law school for two different governors in Arizona, at least under their domain, Governor Williams and Governor Castro. So I was under their umbrella working for community action programs. And then I went into social work, after teaching social work after that, and then eventually teach business. Uh, business, yeah. So, you know, we've talked a little bit offline uh, about the the foundation and the hopeful intersection, but sometimes you know, missed connection between law, ethics, and business. Could you tell us more about that? Yes, um, I think what I realized uh, when I first went into teaching law was the absence of ethics. And I had come in from a social work orientation. So I wanted to make sure that in business we considered a social responsibility kind of a concept. So I started looking at textbooks and very few of the textbooks when I started teaching back in the late 70s had ethics as part of a business law course. So that's when I started becoming aware of it. Eventually into the 80s, when I was teaching at USF, I started asking um, the book publishers, why don't we have ethics in the textbooks? St business students should be, should be exposed to ethics. And eventually that started the trend of um, including ethics in business courses. Now we have, like a course I've taught at the U of A for the last three years, ethics and law as a capstone course. And that's fundamental. Everybody takes that course. Through the business curriculum. Uh, through the business curriculum. It's a capstone course, which means every year at Eller, about 900 to 1,000 students have to take the class. And of course, I was the key faculty for that particular course for the last three years. I, I'm taking a break for now uh, to do other things in business, but it's going to include um, social responsibility kind of, kind of concepts as well. You know, I think it's a, you know, it can be an easier connection uh, for us to sometimes see the absence of ethics in business. That's one of the reasons that, uh, uh, that you know, we're so, all of us around the table are, are pretty devoted to conscious capitalism. Uh, but it's, I think it's a bit shocking, at least to me, um, to, to just really hear it voiced that ethics wasn't you know, foundational in law. I mean, I think that we can see that there's a lot of unfair laws out there and a lot of laws that we probably would want to change. And yet to have to take it, you know, five steps back and say, well, that's because law and ethics aren't fundamentally connected through our systems is, is you know, it can be shocking. Well, if I could just add one other point, as an example of it in Arizona, the Arizona Corporation Commission happens to be one of the five state elected positions. So if you want to be elected governor, that's a statewide position. To be in the Arizona Corporation Commission, you have, it's a statewide position. So for the first time, you know, they go back to the beginning of the, of the Arizona Constitution 100 years ago, and Arizona Code of Ethics was finally passed in the Corporation Commission just less than two years ago. So then they now have a code, code of ethics for the Arizona Corporation Commissions, and they regulate business. So, wow. so they had a number of issues that came up over the last several couple of decades, 
And so eventually the public said, hey, you know, should we have a code of ethics for the Arizona Corporation Commission? So that passed, I was at the hearings, and passed, like I said, uh, be about a year and a half or so when it became effective. And so it makes, makes their structure more aware of the role of, of ethics. But once you get into the, into the actual code of ethics itself, you realize that it's very based on, on the law. A lot of what's there is the standards of the law. So it's, it's where law and ethics merge. That's what's in the code of conduct, code, or correct. code of ethics, sorry. Correct, they have a code of ethics, but their code of ethics is based on legal standards, state, federal law, compliance with uh, equal rights or civil rights and things like that, as an example. And those are put in place to help guide that position and the decisions they make, not necessarily for the rest of the state to emulate what's in those those that framework actually it's a very excellent question because they is to regulate themselves for the commissioners commissioners to be in compliance with a certain level of standards of conduct uh, okay. they don't regulate they regulate corporations around the state of california but they don't regulate the conduct of corporations it's a very very subtle distinction they they can regulate themselves but the code the way it's written is limited to their own environment the commissioners and their staff. So did it expand their authority? Good question. Uh, it did not expand the authority. It made their authority more clear about their own responsibilities. So now okay. they can keep focused on the, really to meet their mission, which probably is good it business like, in Arizona. Well, before <laughs> it sounds with some guardrails, right? Before it was instinctual, I think we're doing what's right, where now they're trying to objectify that to a certain degree and say, here's... Correct. There were races raised by the public about the role of commissioners in their relationships with companies they uh, were regulating, utility companies, for example. So I think they are now more clear about what kind of lunches you can have. It has to be open, transparent, things like that. It makes sense. And Jeremy, I want to add to your point, um, you know, before what were they doing? Well, how any organization or team or group behaves if it doesn't have some type of a code of ethics conduct values is based on the individuals who make up that group or organization their personal ethics and values. So you think about how did you learn what you learned? And do I assume that you, yours are the same as mine? Well, I was brought up in a military Catholic household. So believe me, I have very strong ethics and morals. And I'm pretty clear on <laughs> how people should behave. Area. It's kind of Ten Commandments. <laughs> treat others as you would you know, be, be treated yourself. But I have learned through the hard knocks in life and business, and especially when I moved to Arizona with a lot of business fraud that I personally experienced without the help of the organizations that are supposed to be consumer protection based. They never did anything they were supposed to do in all my different cases of what I experienced in Arizona coming from California. They obviously didn't have that code. And I learned, wow, not everybody uh, acts in life, treats other people or acts in business as I do. Not everybody has my same ethics. And I was well into my really early, early 40s, quite frankly before I learned that, because where I worked in the Silicon Valley in California and where I worked in Boston, I really only had ethical experiences with people. For whatever reasons, I was maybe fortunate or they were brought up and trained in a certain way and they were mostly highly educated. But it's an excellent point, you know, how, how an organization operates is gonna be based on the ethics of the individuals involved 
and whether or not there's actually some spoken and expected way of conducting yourself as an entity. Right. No, that makes good sense. I'm curious, you said that you had the good fortune of being in ethical environments. Now, does that apply also to your consulting work that you've done? Have you found that as you enter in with organizations, most of them have that clarity or was that part of what you were yes. tasked to help them? Yes. And I have to honestly on? say that that is before I arrived in Arizona. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, so over your career, have you seen? Because it's a reality and there is a reason. There is a reason. Arizona, people say, oh, it's a wild, wild west. It's okay. That's how we are. It's our culture. We can get away with it. I'm like, wow, okay. Geez. But the impact, the negative impact to people of not behaving with ethics um, is negative and or can be. And I clearly and quickly saw the lack of benefit to acting that way, which I would think would have been intuitive. But if it's to take the money and run and, and the fraudsters already out the door, well, that just leaves, you know, somebody damaged behind. Of course. Illustrating the point of why we're talking about the value of conscious capitalism, not being unconscious and unintentional in your business endeavors. Of course, yes. Well, and you think about, you know, you were, you were saying, you know, your values and, and your personal values and, and where they come from and, and, you know, how your, your, your actions are based on your beliefs and your beliefs are based on your experiences. And so, you know, you had these experiences when you grew up and then you had these experiences with business when you were in California. And then yet coming into Arizona, there had been a whole different set of experiences that led to the beliefs that, about what is acceptable business, right? And so it's not not necessarily that you know people are innately wrong it's just that they grew up in a different experience and then th therefore had a, a different set of, of beliefs and even if you take that back to the the Arizona Corporation Commission you know that group it seems like maybe it wasn't clear who they truly were serving so they're they're developing these relationships with business and they're you know doing things that are you know helping the businesses because that's where they have these relationships and yet who are they really in you know put in place to serve and maybe that code of ethics sort of helped define that it has i believe it's it's going to a million miles down the road from what it used to be. And uh, it's a model. It's a very simple model of a code of ethics. I think over time they'll probably make some enhancements. Um, you always learn from experience. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's always the, this line between what the legislature can or should do versus what the Arizona Corporation does. Uh, and uh, because each, each of them are, are established by the, uh, by the Constitution in Arizona. So... Uh, but the, it has a lot of power to, to regulate uh, corporations. I mean, it's what it is. Very strong. Uh, go ahead. Rachel, I'm curious. So you've been in Arizona for how long now? Uh, 15 years. 15 years. And have you, uh, how would you say we've evolved? Uh, when you think about, you know, coming from California, coming here and really being shocked or, uh, and then to where we are now, what I've really found interesting is when I'm in an organization assisting them with any type of improvement, um, I will see and call out things that I might think are shocking, like sexual harassment still today, right, by a leader in an organization, like not acceptable, illegal, in fact. And yet there, are, I find, is often um, 
an attitude of, hey, it's okay because I want to do it. And who's going to hold me accountable? Wow, that was a new one for me. Like, wow, you know, really? <laughs> okay, let me tell you. So I started getting into, now we're intersecting a little bit with Anthony. I started getting into doing legal defensibility workshops. And so I used to do uh, work in California. Law firms would hire me sometimes to go and do investigations of workplace issues, you know, where it, you needed a neutral party to come in and do an expert investigation. So all of a sudden I started realizing, wow, maybe the higher level things that I teach and consult on to help improve organizations, um, I need to kind of really start at basics for a lot of these companies around what you can and can't do legally. Let's just start there. And I always have to talk about the consequences because if they don't innately care because it is illegal or unethical or what have you, then it's like, let me tell you how much money that's going to cost you <laughs> when that employee files a complaint or a lawsuit or what have you. So it's a whole different way I've had to approach looking at organizations in terms of being able to make a positive impact at the, starting at their level. Now, of course, I'm not saying all organizations are at this level, but there is a lot still going on in business that is not legal and it's not ethical and people get hurt. And so I see those situations. I'm also a recruiter. So people come in my office all the time looking for a job or I've recruited them and I hear stories that are shocking to me about their work environments. So I advise them, no, that's not okay. You can, this is what you do, this is who you tell, this is, and meanwhile, let me go talk to that company and tell them that they need to improve how they're running their organization. Those would not be very conscious businesses, obviously. And so we're talking here about how do you elevate a company to be more conscious? So uh, as somebody who's sitting in the front of the classroom, uh, helping educate our future leaders on these topics is, uh, so as you were making that statement, Rachel, it kind of seems like the law is sort of the must do's and the ethics are the should do's is, uh, what does the dialogue look like? What, what are we bestowing to these people that are sitting in your classes? What are they walking away with that experience with? That's a very good question. Um, the composition of our classes today are very international in scope. So that changes the conversation a little bit. I mean, international business, so the commerce is, is well, cross-country? international in the sense that our students the are student coming from base. all over the world. Okay. So our classes are much more diverse than they were perhaps 20 years ago. Okay. Uh, almost every university in the country is that way. So that changes the conversation only because many students come from countries where the legal systems are not as defined as our system. China, maybe Russia, the Philippines, other countries around the world. So students grow up in that environment uh, influenced more by, more by custom rather than following a law per se. So they are a challenge to us here because now they're learning law and they also learn in ethics and so it's the merger of the two that becomes a challenge uh, for our students of today. But the whole goal of these courses is basically to introduce students to what is proper conduct, proper behavior, code of, co uh, code of conduct, code of ethics, uh, but there has to be a compliance with the law. So that's why there's a basic law uh, integration into the, into the curriculum for that. And so you just focus on the intersection of those two, or do you talk about the separation? Like, this is, this is the mandate. If you do this, you're in the situation like Rachel was just explaining. Well, I think what happens is they know what the standard is in the class, the expectations. So we try to help them understand what ethical standards we apply. Utilitarianism might be one 
one theory uh, and how we apply that to actual practice in, say, in criminal law. Uh, and then there's the law, like, uh, for example, antitrust law would be one area that we would cover uh, and then merge it in with uh, ethical considerations, ethical practice. So it's kind of a convergence of the two. Okay. Um, and students, so we, we teach them to understand the difference between the two, ethics and law, and what each is, uh, and then the merger of the, of the two. It's not a, uh, I don't want to say it's the easiest thing to do. I would say uh, 10 or 15% of the students probably will not change because they're so embedded in the, in the structure that they came from. Mm -hmm. And that's pr why we have issues around the world around ethics and corruption and things like that. So if you go back to Saudi Arabia or some other country where corruption is well normal, normal, more normal, normal yep. mm -hmm. then that's what you go back to, uh, to practice that. Uh, that's what it is. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think our students of today are wonderful, they're ter terrific, but I would say the, the challenge is to reach all of them. And but the great majority of our students have fundamentals that are consistent with our ethical systems of today. You would hope so, right? Uh, that's our intention. That's our hope, yeah. 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 And in the class, are they case studies? Are they sort of simulations? Like, here's the situation. What do you do? Where, what, where are you bound to take action legally versus ethically? We, we do current events a lot. Okay. So we, there's always current events, cases that are going on um, of the day. Uh, Wells Fargo was one case that came to light. Uh, in the last couple of years, so mm -hmm. we discussed that as, as, a, as, a, as a case, and they do an analysis of the case, both uh, in terms of what happened and who was responsible, because we have people who are majors in marketing, accounting, uh, finance, and so each one of them will end up in different positions at Wells Fargo. So the question is, if you're in a finance position with Wells Fargo, what responsibility do you have to raise the issue? And to whom? And so it's 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 part of the course was structured to basically have each individual, no matter what your major is, because I think we have like seven or eight majors. Uh, MIS was the other one, information systems. Then uh, you basically try to get students to look at it from how close it is to what they do, because a lot of individuals think that the law or ethics is something that's way out there. So you really have to personalize it. Right, maybe something that's not even their responsibility. It's like, well, that's the law. Yes. So I'm going to let the law take care of it. Yes. And I'm just going to kind of hang out over here and wait until the law does what it's supposed to do. And if the law doesn't do what it's supposed to do, then I guess maybe it was okay. Yeah, that's exactly what happened with Enron because everyone kept saying, well, that belongs to the lawyers. And, of course, the lawyers were somewhere else. So that's why we ended up with the problems with it with Enron. So, Rachel, I'm curious because, you know, I, I listened to Anthony and he talks about the international students and how, you know, a lot of them are, are going back and they're going back into the systems that, that they came from. And we hope that, you know, the exposure maybe has, you know, a small <coughs> impact. You know, they take some of that back with them and maybe they don't completely overhaul a system, but at least they have a new perspective. So little changes. And yet with you, you and the work that you're doing, you have the the possibility of making big changes within an organization. So when you come across, you know, someone who is maybe lacking in, in ethics, um, how do you help them? 
Well, we're getting into um, kind of the fundamentals of how do you translate uh, for any individual who is employee, looking for employment or, or in employment uh, between understanding what ethics are and what the laws are and how are you going to apply that in your, in your current environment of where you're working. And that really gets into how leaders create a culture where there are expectations for people to be ethical and to be lawful. And I was thinking when Anthony was talking about that case, because I'm well familiar, I was somebody who was impacted by that Wells Fargo event and, and many others. Um, in organizations of every kind, every day, things are seen by somebody that might not be on the up and up. They may not be legal, they may not be ethical, or it may be questionable. There's always that question the individual has, is it my responsibility or will it be positive or negative for me if I report it? So one of the main things is, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, you know, how do you create the culture of, eth of, of ethics and of values in an organization, but there's also the issue of what kind of culture are you creating in terms of are your employees comfortable coming to an appropriate person to report something that is impacting other folks or the culture or customers or stockholders or whatever in a negative way. If it's not in alignment with the values, if it's clearly not in alignment with ethics, who in the organization cares? There has to be expectations that are set from the very uh, beginning of an organization and throughout constantly reminding employees, hey, you know, we run this kind of an organization. Yeah, everybody here. cares. Right? Who cares? Yeah. Everybody cares. Yeah. Well, if you see something that's not in alignment, not reasonable, not ethical, not legal, please talk, tell so-and-so. You have to say who you go to for different things. And that individual cannot feel fearful that if I go, I'm going to be impacted, I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to be branded as not being a team player, or you're not going to get the information. So now you're talking about how do you create that culture of trust? trust among individuals so that people will act ethically. So you mentioned um, values a bit and, uh, you know, tell us a little bit more about how, and, and you also said, you know, you know, opened us up to the conversation about conscious culture. So I think let's just go. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell us more about values and, you know, how do they link to ethics and how does that create a culture? Okay. So, Creating conscious uh, capitalism in an organization does not happen iteratively. It has to be created intentionally. And that tone is usually set by the leader or leaders of an organization. And any more organizations are getting flatter and flatter. It's not all just, you know, CEO or president or executive director who's the leader and everyone under them isn't. We have, you know, we've had layers and layers, senior VPs, VPs, managers, what have you. I consider a leader anybody who has responsibility for other people and for making decisions that are important in an organization. So really, you would ultimately hope you could have an organization with a lot of leaders, right? Um, and the way you create a conscious culture is you have to basically set up a foundation of values upon which that organization is going to be run. And the expectations of how you conduct yourself are based on the values. The values are a translation of ethics, so to speak, and you're basically saying, okay, our expectation of your behavior is this, and these values 
we articulate and our, we feel so strongly about, they're in our handbook, they're on the wall, they're on our customer collateral, our shareholders know about them. We are truly committed to creating this organization based on these cultures. And you will recruit to those values. You will do performance management, training, um, succession planning, branding, everything is gonna be based on those values. And increasingly, a brand is considered to be about a third of the value of a company. Now that's kind of shocking. The first time I heard that five years ago, it's really come to be true. More and more companies are becoming branding companies. But you have to live that. You have to live what you say your brand is. And the brand is based on the values. So like last week I did for two different organizations, vision, mission, uh, values, strategy and goals development. It takes hours and hours and hours to, to winnow all those down and clarify them. And then you have to sit with it for a week or two and, you know, and look at it and test it out with all the stakeholders. And what do you think? And you refine it. And then when you finally decide it's right and you adopt it, now you live to it. You manage to it. So conscious leaders do that. And they either you know, hire people, coaches, consultants to help them, or they read books, however it is, or maybe they're innately good at it. But whatever it is, it's essential to really run a conscious business to be able to create a culture based on values and expectations for behavior. Anthony, how does that, does that link back to what you're doing in the classroom? I mean, does that... Does that, you know, are you at a different level when you're looking at, you know, ethics and business and laws? Or do you do you hear, you know, the things that you're teaching expressed in, in you know, what Rachel was describing? Absolutely. Direct connection to that. Uh, for years, I was a professor teaching leadership courses. And part of my teaching, part of my military career, I was a professor of military science, ROTC, uh, early in my career. So the fundamentals of conscious leadership is the values. Values like truth, like honesty, transparency, things like that. Those are really, that's what translates consciously. You're aware that you want to be honest, you want to be truthful, you want to be fair. So that's really the key. So you're, you're, you're aware of it because you've got these set of values. And that's what we teach in leadership uh, in the military and our officers. And that's what we bring to the classroom to teach our young business students, future leaders of business, uh, to be fair, to be honest, to be truthful. If you're a marketing uh, specialist, you want to tell the truth. You don't want to distort the truth to sell your products or whatever it is you're selling. That's, that's kind of the core value there. I mean, you can move those things around, and we have a lot of that that doesn't happen. Um, in all aspects of business. So honesty is very, very important in, in how you approach that. So that would be my answer to the question of how, uh, how conscious capitalism leadership merged together with values, but the leader has to have that foundation. If the leader doesn't have that foundation, then the people under him or her will not have that. You know, they can get away with everything they can get away with. So ultimately it comes up to the leader has to be visible, open, um, and repeated often. That, that's what it is. Right. It's really who you are, right? And it's who you are. Yeah. I mean, I think the founders of Hewlett Packard, as an example, they were very aware of, of the importance of ethics and, and their role as leaders of the company. They develop a great culture. Companies like Cisco is another one, I think, that uh, stood out that way. But there are multiple leaders out there today 
that uh, don't necessarily meet the same standard because they are forced by the pressure there is on corporations to succeed. So a few things get left out here and there um, in, the, in the various reports. And I want to piggyback on that because if we bring it to where we are today in terms of who are we hiring, we're hiring a generation, generations of people who might be 40 and younger. And that's not just millennial and that's not just Gen X. I mean, with accelerated change, every 10 years is a generation practically. So the expectations of the younger generation are very different. And they're not really copacetic with organizations that are not based on values. They want to see a clear vision. They want to see a clear mission. They want to find their purpose in life at work in many cases. They want to live their truth and their purpose as they're learning about it for themselves. They don't want a big separation between how I can be at home and how I can be at work. And at work, I can't say what I feel. I can't talk about what's really going on. I have to just toe the line and say what my boss tells me to do. And I have no input and no one really values me. That is not working for that generation, and therefore, they are going out on their own. It's very entrepreneurial, number, multiple generations now that are coming into the workplace. And I really um, have issues with millennial bashing and a lot of what people say, oh, they do, they're lazy and this and that. I don't really believe that at all. I'm seeing millennials and Gen X and Gen Y and Gen Z do incredible things and using collabs and collaborative uh, other types of collaborative communication and business resourcing to create amazing enterprises. And a lot of them have social consciousness as their main objective. They want to improve the world. They want to make things better for animals, for people, you know, for, for the environment. And, um, you know, in a way, we reap what we sow. So if we've had this hierarchical type of organizational structure in America traditionally and, you know, the stovepipes and the fiefdoms and the discontent and the lack of engagement, which is huge in companies in America today, engagement's very low, um, then guess what's happened? A new way of doing business is evolving by this younger generation. And I find it fascinating. And we need to learn from that. Every corporation of every size needs to learn from that and say, okay, what could we be doing to be more socially responsible? They really do want values-based, ethics-based, and run organizations and leaders. So the last point on that is, how are we teaching people to be leaders? Who's teaching them? Where's, where are they going to learn to be leaders? There, there is a gap in, in that right now, in training and development. In where is it happening right now? The U.S., People have to seek it out on their own. There's many different consultants and trainers and universities that have their own versions of leadership programs, but everyone's very different from every other one. It's not like it's cohesive. It's not like there's a standard upon which we're teaching these values and these ethics and these business practices. There is a huge opportunity for something bigger and better to happen. And uh, until there is basically some uh, very strong value put on people only being promoted into leadership positions when they truly can be conscious leaders. Until then, we're going to still reap, unfortunately, what's not rewarding in terms of behavior that disengages and disenfranchises and makes it tougher for businesses to operate. Yeah, it was uh, something that we discussed on a prior show, and it's also something that we focus on a lot within my own company, of course, within the context of safety. It's this, this prevalent 
problem where people get promoted based on some sort of technical skill, but into some sort of supervisor role, but they're given absolutely no training on how to be a leader. And so it just perpetuates this whole sense of dissatisfaction by both them and the people they're attempting to lead because they were promoted based on some sort of technical skill. And so now they think they need to be better at that technical skill. But really what they need to do is, is learn how to lead people. And so you have these people who want to be led by someone who has no idea how to lead. And you have someone who's been promoted and wants to show that they have some you know, elevated level of value. And yet they're, they were never given the skills or even told that they needed to have these skills in in leading people so and here's the conundrum with that today I actually developed a whole program for supervisory skills and management skills training it's a one-day program that helps someone who's been an individual contributor to learn what is expected and needed in order for them to be a good supervisor or manager and it's very interesting when you go to market that to organizations of all sizes because typically there's pushback around Oh, I can't give an employee a whole day off. <laughs> what would happen to productivity? Well, I can quantify that for you. When they learn how to do these things much better, the productivity is going to increase exponentially. But in their mind, it's they're looking at the day, that day that they're not sitting in that seat. I call it button seat. That day that butt's not in that seat. Somehow I'm losing something. And I have to then help elevate what they're seeing to really expand on how ultimately, and very soon in fact, is this going to improve your organization? People want to learn, and in fact, for the younger generations, training is the number one thing they want mm -hmm. from organizations. Pay is like fifth. They want to know that they're going to be valued, valued. they're going to be trained, you're going to teach me something I already know, I'm going to become a more valuable person and individual in my, in my life and in my career. And so, the need is great for exactly what you're talking about, supervisor managerial training, managerial training. And I think if I hear one more person say, well, can you do it in 15-minute bites? <laughs> yes, I'm not, I'm not coming to your company 15 times to do 15 minutes every time because I can tell you as an instructional designer and learning theory says you need to be able to learn it and say it and practice, practice it. it. And we have exercises and we do this all in real time. And just-in-time learning is great. Uh, learning online and videos is great, but increasingly all the studies are showing that in-classroom, in-person learning is by far exceeding in terms of actual learning. Yeah, there's a difference between awareness and that online and, and um, you know, bite size. It's all great to establish awareness and maybe uh, state, state the case for the training, but that is not learning. You know, you have to, you have to have some sort of practice. I mean, you have to get in, you have to really get into it. It can't be superficial to learn. So, yeah. And so I'm sure, you know, Anthony coming, you know, you're an educator. And so you spend, you know, your time, you know, exactly in that. I mean, you and, and in a lot of classroom, I mean, I'm sure that that makes sense to you. And to think about, you know, applying ethics, um, you know, that must, that must, you know, resonate or, you know, yeah, check the box. <laughs> well, it definitely makes great sense. Yeah. Um, you know, there's so many aspects to the to the issue of leadership, and um, you you can actually leaders. Some people say leaders are born, and some people seem to be almost born to be leaders. But the first thing you have to do to be a leader is you have to learn to how to follow. And if you're a very good follower, then that's a good sign that you can eventually become a good leader in training.
So that's really a key. Once, once you understand what it is to, to follow, then you'll, um, then when you get put in the position of responsibility, then um, you generally can make that shift, but it does require some training, some awareness, you know, if, especially if you have role models. If you have role models around you, then you can emulate what they do. Which is a good point. Coaching and mentoring are a critical part of learning. It doesn't all have to be formal classroom learning or we're doing an experiential learning. Yeah. I absolutely require in organizations that I'm working in and we're setting up programs that when people are getting onboarded, they're assigned a mentor. Mm -hmm. They're assigned somebody who is going to actually facilitate their journey in that organization so that not only is it positive, but they have someone that they feel they can honestly talk to about, oh, I'm feeling deficient, like here, like I need a little help here, or can you tell me how you did that? Or, you know, think about the, I think about the people that are the greatest leaders I know. They all point to somebody that they had in their career or, or, or multiple people who are mentors to them that they learned from. So having a thirst for learning learning and understanding that continual learning is going to be beneficial and critical to success in life really needs to be something also that leaders embrace, leaders of organizations, conscious organizations embrace, that we need to provide lifelong learning for our stakeholders. And sometimes that includes, you know, the investors. Sometimes that includes the customers. What do they need to know? Good point. You know, about what you're doing. And hey, we have license to change. Oh, market shifted. We're going to pivot. We're going to do things this way now. Let's inform everybody. Let's involve everybody. Let's engage everybody <laughs> so that we have a successful result as opposed to the opposite, which doesn't work. I was listening. I don't know if Simon Sinek himself came up with this concept. It's, uh, he was mentioning ethics fade. And I don't know if you're familiar with that terminology, but the concept is kind of similar to what we're telling, talking about now, which um, clearly you have to have the right leadership in place to establish what are ethical foundations and you know what are our values, what is the organization all about. We need to have the mechanisms in place so that, hey, there's a party foul over here. What do I do about it? But more importantly, that this leadership training that isn't, you know, you're getting resistance for a one day get away. But training isn't, uh, okay, great. It's, uh, it's February 1st. You get to go get your day out to go learn. Like this is, this is where the culture piece steps in, which is it's ongoing all the time. We need to be demonstrating that these are our values. It's not just a, oh, you violated, you know, now you're going to get docked an afternoon's pay. No, no, no. This is about, we reinforce everything that's right because leadership will change. And even if it's the founder, they, there could be a succession structure. There could be, uh, an M&A event where, you know, the core group of people are still intact, but now we're under a new banner. And so ethics fade comes in when leadership, even well-intended and out of the gate was right, through the evolution of the business and its journey and its cycles, it loses its foundation on what was there on those founding principles out of the gate. So uh, all these things about leadership, it's, it's, there's not that check the box and it's done. It is an everyday kind of engagement if you truly want to operate at the conscious level. And that's where culture comes in, right? It's like where the cult, you, if you want to have a, you know, if you want to, the best, uh, I guess, anecdote to ethics fade is to make sure it's not about, you know, one or two, you know, top leaders, but again, having those leaders throughout all the organization and developing your culture around it. 
Right. I mean, it, it, there is an interesting organization. I can't remember the name of it anymore, but it's a company I didn't do consulting with, but someone told me about them. And they would do this flip thing every month. They would let an employee be the CEO. Cool. And they, yeah. and that employee sat in the boardroom when there were investor conferences. In fact, they ended up miking them to the entire employee group in the cafeteria when there was an investor event. So they got to see the connection between their own value and their own job and what how that was impacting Wall their stock on Wall Street, and you think about all the implications of that, right? So that's showing someone what your real value is. And that's obviously only for, you know, companies that are public, but any good leader could translate for those that are employees, and, you know, of course, you have contractors too. What's your value to this organization? What's your value to our customer? What's your value, our value, to our community? And tie it all together and be real transparent about it. Because if I'm sitting in a cubicle and I'm doing marketing communications, big whoop. You know, I don't really know what my value is. I'm pretty sure that if I quit my job, you'd find someone else. Or if I do something wrong or I speak up about something, maybe you're just going to replace me. You know, because what do I really know, right? right? Beyond my little tiny job and my little, you know, tiny cubicle or office. Everyone should feel fully invested in, an or in their organization and in the outcome and what they're trying to create. And this is what creates high engagement in an organization. This organization is not going to have turnover. The, this organization is not going to have problems recruiting because people go home and they talk to their spouse and their friends and at the soccer games about what a great company they work for and how awesome their leaders are and what, what how valued they are and what they're doing in the world, right? That is what will make a company great. Agree. So I want to add one point here, and that is uh, another area that I've been teaching for years, also a capstone course, is strategic ma management. And so what I do with ethics and law is to add this piece of strategy. So the only way these things that you're talking about is if this is strategic design. So in other words, it doesn't just happen by chance. What happens is because it's part of the strategy of the organization. So everyone in the organization knows that their role is very important to the vision and mission of the organization. Mm -hmm. So you integrate, so it's very ethical to make sure that each employee knows what the, where the organization is going. Because if every employee doesn't understand the role within the organization, even the person who sits in the front desk, they're not going to understand exactly how important the role is. So part of strategy, part of leadership, is to incorporate in ethics and, and the legal aspects of the, of the organization an understanding of each person's role, strategic role in the bottom line, which is profit of an organization. So it's really integrated. So part of what we do in the course in ethics and law, maybe a third of the course is really around strategy, is the incorporation of strategic concepts and into the profit bottom line of the company. So I'm curious because, um, so the, the value of every human or every employee and understanding their role as a strategy, but how... What what is the the basic ethic that says that we value every human? I mean, we talked about transparency and honesty, but you know what? Besides just the strategy to get to your bottom line, is there a core ethic that that aligns to that? Well, if you're a people-oriented organization, you want to make sure that everybody feels like they are important to the organization from the bottom up, from the person that's in the front there, you know, front desk all the way up. 
So they are really are working towards the same common objective of the organization. And customer service is so fundamental. In many organizations, you've heard of Nordstrom having the model of how they serve people. And everybody knows exactly what they have to do uh, all the way up the, cha up the chain. So I think it's a common, uh, common focus of organizations is the customer service. Each person is important. And how you do that from the person that walks into your office all the way through is what determines the success of the company and the, and the culture of the company as well. It's all integrated. It's all integrated, isn't Makes it? Makes sense. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. So when I was um, thinking about ethics fade, one of the things that came to mind is that one of the things that will just fade is, is timeliness, right? So um, if you've ever watched uh, Mad Men, right? Like the style of business, like that was, uh, while it's uh, hyper personified for, you know, dramatic purposes, I mean, that, that concept of a workplace isn't too far-fetched. And so as time evolves, you had mentioned that, you know, sort of your next um, release, if I understood correctly, is going to sort of engage some social dynamics into this. So the ethics of honesty and trustworthiness, to me, that's like, okay, yeah, and what else? Because if you're not doing that, how many people can you cheat over before sooner or later you're going to get found out and people aren't going to want to do business with you? It's like, where are the ethics progressing to? Are we talking about diversity? Are we talking about the other things that are sort of becoming more mainstream in our cultural dialogue today? How does that manifest in what you see? Well, I think the big challenge for us today is technology and artificial, and artificial intelligence. Perfect example. And artificial intelligence is subject to abuse. Uh, so part of what I'm bringing into Arizona with my contacts and individuals that I have known in the Bay Area uh, is to launch uh, some businesses that are going to be very focused on corporate social responsibility and other products. But they're going to incorporate a very positive use of technology. Artificial intelligence included, because if you look at a lot at how artificial intelligence is used in some circles around the world, it's being it is being abused. It can't be subject to being abused. Mm -hmm. So it's a new area, new arena. Um, so we're 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 hoping to bring in bring in some key people to Arizona to work with us uh, in some ventures to um, to make the state a better. Well, that's exciting. I can't wait yeah. to you know catch up with you sometime in the near future to, to hear more about that. It makes me think, though, you know, about artificial intelligence and how we could we could actually program ethics in. And so we could, you know, make that a, a criteria and saying, you know, so artificial intelligence, that's, you know, letting the computers, you know, do the thinking and do the complex calculations and, and better, you know, in certain areas and maybe people can do. Well, if you incorporate ethics into it, well, then now all of a sudden you've flipped that, right? And yes. Yep. So Well, that'll be very interesting how that evolves uh, in actual practice. But I think that's those areas that are subject to, from what I can tell, uh, abuse today without question and that uh, kind of goes to the the yeah. ongoing learning and training because a leader that you know is a couple decades in is now ai is this new thing i yes. have to retool yes. what our what our value set is going to be around ai i mean we've got our our cornerstone that we stand on but the actual day-to-day -day, how does this play out it's going to take some knowledge and some understanding and hopefully some communal 
access to understand what everybody else has tried and failed with or is having success with. Yeah, and there's a point about that that's really critical, and it's very pertinent in conversation today, and that is around... And some organizations are feeling like, hey, we can put less value on our human employees because we're going to migrate to robotics and AI, et cetera, et cetera. And certainly employees are feeling this and they're looking at trends and going, oh, my gosh, if we have driverless cars and driverless cabs and I can't drive Uber and I can't, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Job, some jobs are going to be going away as we are able to use technology to make improvements. However, and I say this right on the first video that's on my own website, until your company is all robots, you need to treat every human being as a human being because all the values that we're talking about still apply in terms of motivating them and helping them understand how using technology can be beneficial. And I'll say for HR managers, the, the application that I see right off the bat is we can do so many more things now through, say, a payroll company. They'll offer all these components beyond just providing your payroll. You know, so whether, you know, doing all the, the tax deduction work, uh, having a performance management system integrated, a recruiting system, you know, a candidate tracking system, you get these things now as part of a package. Well, an HR person used to have to do all that stuff, and, and that really is very administrative work that might have prevented them from doing the more strategic work of supporting their organization and their people. So this is another thing that we really need to look at is how is technology benefiting the human in the work environment and looking at it from that perspective instead of using it as a big stick of intimidation like, hey, you're going to lose your job one day, you know, so just get more effective and more productive and more profitable or, you know, you know robotics are going to replace you. Well, and there's an ethical discussion to be had there, right? Like if the factory floor is where the most accidents are happening to people and they're losing fingers and arms and legs and we can have a robot do that, which means no human suffering, you can make that ethical stance. But then, of course, there's the, okay, that we just displaced a human from the economic productivity. So what do we do with them? How do we plug them in? But We help them become an entrepreneur. A, yes. <laughs> well, exactly. And I think, you know, you said it well in that, you know, when we look at technology and advancements, it it you know, should be, it needs to be within the context of how are we helping the humans? You know, I mean, and, and not just humans, you know, life, you know, because yeah. let's expand it yeah. beyond just humans. You know, how are we, how are we helping, you know, this whole ecosystem, our life, you know, all the things that are, you know, connected here on, on earth. Yeah. Well, I knew this was going to happen once we started going, this hour was going to fly by. We got a couple minutes left. Was there anything that you guys didn't get to do, put out there on the airwaves that you were thinking about coming into this discussion? Well, the only thing I would add would be the importance of corporate social responsibility uh, for all companies today. Because of the state that we're in today, I think it's very, very important for companies to really be aware of what's going on relating to the workforce. So corporate, service, corporate social responsibility means there's a basically an obligation of companies to be aware of that, the issue of AI and displacement of employees, you know, so what's going to happen next? How, how are we going to take care of people? How so are we going to take care of people? Yeah, so I think that's really the bottom line that's in great. that regard. So I think corporate social responsibility, uh, it kind of shifts the response. You're still profit-oriented, like Mill Friedman's theory, but I think we still have to be looking at, okay, there's got to be a balance here of, of how we take care of our, of our uh, workforce in some way. And one practical translation of that that's another hot topic is um, chief human resource officers are now often being recruited 
and hired out of the finance world or the technology mm -hmm. world. So CPAs sometimes are becoming the chief human resource officer and they have zero HR experience. And in many cases don't even have the knowledge or the skill sets to really lead people effectively and understand the psychology. This is very dangerous and it's happening all over the country. Um, so you're seeing the shift of the company going, hey, it's all about money, it's all about finance, squeeze and more profitability. And I'm going to tell you right now as an expert in psychology, it's not going to work that way <laughs> while you have human beings working for you. Yep. So please hire people in the positions that manage people that really effectively know how to engage and motivate and manage people. And of course, we're always doing this for essentially profit if it's a capitalist company if you're if it's a profitable company not a nonprofit even nonprofits have yep. profit you, still you know how need that works the money so to sustain. let's just talk <laughs> about that conversation you know continue that thought for another day perfect thank Great. you both so very much yeah, thank you. We really appreciate having you both here. I, you know, you gave us, a, Anthony, a little peek as to why you're taking, you know, a break from academia. And so I, uh, although we were, uh, you know, happy or, you know, very appreciative of the work you did in the classroom, I'm pretty excited about what you might do That's outside of the next. classroom. Yeah. So. After spending 20 years in uh, the Bay, or 40 years in the Bay Area, it's time to... Uh, Bring it here. Bring it. Bri bridge. <laughs> and, you know, same thing with you, Rachel. Thank you so much for everything that you do and, and helping to, you know, grow more conscious companies, you know, in, in Arizona. Thanks for being in Arizona. <laughs> it's my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you very much.